Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? I remember that I spent hours dreaming of being an astronaut. Ian Andrew, on the other hand, always knew that he wanted to be a golf course architect. And unlike so many of us dreamers, Ian actually followed his dream to become one of golf's most respected designers and restoration specialists, bringing courses from the game's golden age back to their former glory. There are enough golf courses that are like this where you have a horrible journey, you have that wonderful photographic moment that everybody talks about and you see in every magazine, and then the rest of it's crap. That's not golf. Golf is is about something that's 18 holes long that all fits together and you can't wait to get out there again. I met up with Ian at his home in Brantford, Ontario, where we jumped right into the creative process of golf course design. If you're going to write a story, you're going to sit down on a blank piece of paper, you might have some idea of what it is you're going to write, but the first word just is what leads to the next. When you're looking at, the, when you're looking at this blank slate of land, you just go, forget, forget about how many par fives, forget about how many par fours, forget about how many par threes, forget about where they all are. Let's just find where the holes are. Let's look at what the land is giving me. If that means I've got like six par threes in a row, let's just get that on the paper first and then start to work from there. That's absolutely correct. You let the intuitive side of your brain go. So you let the side of your brain go that has no rules. And you tell it to just find things that make sense. And it finds everything that makes sense as far as golf holes go, without worrying about how they go together, whether they're all three. That was a good example. Whether they're all threes or all fives, it does not matter. It's just what what is showing up on the paper. Um, and then you, once you've got that collective collage together of all these ideas, then you go to the other side of your brain, the thinking side, the plotting side, and then you start to okay, this goes together, or I, I like this piece, or there's a sequence here. And you start to work that together and you figure out what you've actually got. Oh, look, I've got four, four, three, five, four. Okay. Um, that may make it easier to actually work through some of the other ideas. Say you end up with three, four, three, five, three. That's starting to complicate the rest of the, the routing. You may have to reconsider some of that. But you, you let the free side of the mind go, and then you sort of grind your way through things. But at a certain point, you've, when you start to get a piece of a journey, or the, maybe if you're lucky, the entire journey together, you actually go back to the intuitive side of your mind again, and you flow through it, and you flow through it as if you're actually playing. You just kind of go through, you see how it all feels together, and you rely on uh, your emotions and what you think, what you think they are in comparison and how that journey progresses. And then, funny enough, you then go back to the sort of that thinking side of you and you start to add details to it on how you would do it. And again, you're trying to break up uh, for variety. So you may have all these intuitive holes, but maybe say, for example, they're kind of um, tend to flow the same direction or flow the same way in shots you'll actually look to see if there's a way you can break up part of that journey to actually turn some things around or whether there's some design choices you can make that actually get it to flow. Because in the end, you also, at some point, you want to get a little bit of um, design balance. So you don't want to favor a certain type of shot, a certain type of player. So you may have to back off or you just have to find out if you've got ways of working with what you've got that's going to 
sort of holistically achieve that end. Let's start with uh, a little bit about your back history. Where did you grow up and uh, how did you get your interest in golf architecture? So I grew up uh, all throughout southern Ontario, Quebec and England, uh, born in England originally. Uh, interest in golf came uh, following actually interest in uh, golf architecture. So I was watching, I used to watch um, golf with my dad and we were watching the Pebble Beach Pro-Am and I just sort of fell in love with these vistas of these oceanside holes. And then, uh, strangely enough, I asked my dad the question of, does somebody actually design this? My father explained to me that they do. And I said, that sounds like a really interesting career. I'd like to do that. And my dad being my dad, instead of saying, no, uh, you know, you should be an accountant or something else, said, okay. And uh, actually got me a bunch of books on golf architecture. And then uh, as I started to read and he realized I was serious, he said, you really need to learn how to play the game. So that's how I actually took up golf. My dad was a player. I'd catted for dad a little bit, um, but I had not had that compelling drive to play the game until I got interested in the art. So I'm one of the rare people where I came to golf through the art rather than through the, the, the game. But it's funny, I, I don't even remember anything about anybody winning back in that era. Mm -hmm. um, what I remember is the golf course. And I just remember every year it would come on. I couldn't wait. For me, it wasn't Augusta. It was the Pebble Beach Pro-Am was the big draw. Augusta would come later. Yeah. But um, even to this day, I, I quietly um, get excited as soon as the Pebble Beach Pro-Am comes around. I can't wait to watch. For me, fortunately, Dad and I played it in 91 for the first time, and I've played it multiple times since. Mm -hmm. I have my own memories there, and so it's nice. I have sort of uh, multiple layers of connection with that golf course. So even watching it, it just brings back some really great memories. So from reading those books and talking to your dad, did you, in your head, make a plan for how you were, you were going to achieve this goal of golf architecture? I think the power of being 13 at the time is that you're so naive that you just assume that everything will progress magically to you designing golf courses. And uh, I think I think if I would have had that idea later on, I might have dismissed it and become a chemist or become a pharmacist or, or an actuary, sort of the things that I probably was very instinctively would have been natural progressions for me. But at the time, I just thought, why can't I do this? And, and I think I went along for nearly a decade saying, why not? Mm. Um, I, I don't think I ever got to... Uh, and, um, an age of maturity where I started to think that I better have my uh, second choice or my third choice ready. And I think that was one of the beauties of being wanting to do that so early mm -hmm. that it, it, it gave me an, an easy path because I never had to really think about consequences or alternatives. Yeah. Um, being young helps. You want to talk a little bit about um, the education that you got leading to your first job? Uh, I went to Ryerson first. Um, for landscape architecture, graduated, felt that I wasn't, uh, I, I went right out of high school. So I, I, I knew I didn't have to rush through anything. And I felt that I didn't know enough about the design process. So while I felt strong technically, and I had some really good construction jobs, so I felt comfortable with construction ideas and how to detail things, I felt like I didn't have enough strength in design to actually become a designer. So I went to Guelph with the idea of picking up the design side. Also, between uh, going to schools, I went to Europe and did a, a, a study tour on my own that summer. 
uh, I had accumulated enough money that I could get away with only working part of that summer and then spending the rest in Europe. So again, that was to collect ideas and see famous designs and, and sort of understand space and and borrowed scenery and all sorts of things that apply, but more in a landscape architecture end that I could apply to golf. But also I've always said that uh, as an architect, you have a toolbox and the toolbox is basically all the things you've seen and all the techniques that are used. And the more you fill the toolbox, the better an architect you can potentially be if you can apply them properly. Um, but every time I went to see one of these great golf courses, it was just another piece of what's possible for me as an, as an architect in the future. So everything I did, everything I read was about just trying to pull things together so that I had more ideas that I could use or, or a better understanding of what I was looking at or or the ability to see the potential in something that has nothing yet. So when, when somebody has decided we have bought this land and we want to put a golf course on it, what is that conversation? How does the process even begin? What you try to do is you try to figure out where you can and can't go or where the, the difficulties are going to be in, in approvals because you need some sort of approval. So you want to know where your constraints are. And some of it is going to be a choice. Like if, if there's a landscape that I don't believe should be touched because it's an important um, uh, element or um, it has significant plant material or there are places you shouldn't go. You, you sort of identify those things and then you try to work around them. But essentially, you, you begin with uh, a walk on the property just to get a feel. So you want to know what views it has. You want to know uh, what impact outside of that property is going to have on the golf course, because the golf course ends up with long views for the most part. And you try to figure out the places you want to get to. So it, it may be somewhere you want to um, embrace a view, but it may be natural places for holes to go and finish. And in fact, I would say I personally emphasize my work on trying to find natural places to finish golf holes. If you can find natural places for holes to finish, the holes already have a life of their own without anything being done. And uh, you don't have that much work to do. You've just got to find ways that that all links. So once you understand where you want to go and how you want to get there, and you try to come up with as many choices as possible, then you'll sit down with a topographical plan and you'll start to find links. So you'll start to find segments of two or three or four holes that all just flow naturally together. And, you're, and you'll start drawing those on a piece of paper without worrying how any of that connects. And you'll draw them, in my case, I'll draw it in pencil and I'll have one set of links in red, another one in green, another one in yellow, another one in blue. And I'll end up with what looks like just carnage. But what it is, is I'm trying to figure out if, if I can get links to links. I'm trying to find if there's a journey. Because essentially it's an 18-hole journey and you're just trying to find a natural progression through a site that encompasses 18 holes. So as you work along, if you get lucky, you'll get long links that work together. But life is never that sweet. Um, sometimes it's pretty darn good, though. So if you don't, now you've got to figure out how, how am I going to make the transition from one natural stretch to another natural stretch? Or if you've got something you really want to hold on to, can I, can I work this so that I can include that? Because sometimes the, the greatest choice you make in golf architecture is letting something go that is the most obvious thing in the whole entire property because it makes everything else work. 
golf is 18 holes. It's not one hole. It's not, I'm going to go through. There are enough golf courses that are like this where you have a horrible journey. You have that wonderful photographic moment that everybody talks about and you see in every magazine and then the rest of it's crap. That's not golf. Golf is, is about something that's 18 holes long that all fits together and you can't wait to get out there again. So with the, the rooting, you're trying to find um, ways to pull things together. So a lot of times the whole key to it is how you get to a couple of places that don't link together. And if you can find, can you unlock something that works? So I remember when I worked on the golf course that I thought I was going to do with Mike Weir at um, Predator Ridge, when I explained it to them, it, the first thing I identified was the four ways to get, it was a very steep site, the four ways to get up the site. The interesting thing was I identified those, I actually used all four of them. And the whole brooding works around the fact that going uphill was, was just as much fun as going downhill because I'd found ways to deal with that. So a lot of times if you've got a severe site, you actually have to figure out how you're gonna get uphill because everybody knows how to root downhill but getting uphill is what makes a golf course work or fail. And so all of it's about finding the, the natural journey and then solving the most challenging part of the riddle, which on a severe site is going uphill uh, with wetlands or extens extensive constraints. It's about how can I make use of a piece of property that has a lot of constraints? Am, am I going around something? How am I going to do that? And that will dictate a lot of what you have to do. Are you able to uh, talk us through the design of a hole? The, the only one I can, I can sort of jump to very quickly is um, at Maple Downs, uh, the 12th hole used to be a very short par four. So I was asked to, sorry, I should back up and say, I was asked to rebuild greens, tees and bunkers there. And I was given the artistic license to apply my own design style to it. And um, on that hole, the hole is from a high plateau. Uh, green site's only 290 yards from the, the tee. And um, so it's drivable, which I liked. It's also downwind, which I liked. And what I did was I built a hole that's a giant S. So originally it was just wide open and the green was surrounded by bunkers. And the reason I built a hole in the shape of an S is I wanted to give people the ability to play anywhere they wanted for a layup and then face the consequences. So you, the initial part of it on the right-hand side is wide open, but then the green side is on a diagonal to you. If you played left, you would have a better look at the green, but you'd be semi-blind just because of the fairway bunker, the way it works in the landscape. If you played much further down into the right, you'd have a short little pitch, but you'd have to, it's significantly uphill over an incredibly deep bunker. If you tried to go directly for it, everything falls towards the green and the green falls away from the tee shot. And in behind it, it's short grass and in behind that's out of bounds. What I liked was the idea of it's up to you. You have four choices. Each one of them yields different things. Uh, but one of the choices is you could have a, a swing for the fences or roll the bones for everything. And um, I remember the very first time I played it, I hit it out of bounds over the green. So that was a, a hilarious lesson because I had explained the hole to the players I was playing with and then made the worst choice of all the choices, of course. But what I like about the hole, and it's why it's one of my favorite holes that I've ever done, is, is I like the fact that you can play passive 
Um, you can play on the ground, you can play in the air. There's, there's actually every choice there. And at 290 yards, it's a distance that should be just a throwaway. But the fun part for me is talking with a lot of the members, particularly the better players, is everybody's got a story of a three or a two. There are a few twos. There's even been a one there, by the way. Um, but every single one of them has a six or a seven. And that's the story usually they start with is how they made seven on a 290-yard hole. And that's why I think that's probably one of the better holes I ever designed because uh, two and seven are both in the cards. And when you stand up on the tee, it's all up to you. I've not asked you to do anything. I've just given you, impact. depending on what you choose, depends on what you've got to take on and it depends on what risk you're trying to mitigate or manage. And that's why that's probably a hole where I think I made a lot of very good choices and, and I can look back at it and say I would change nothing, which to be honest, architects are very um, mildly insecure people. Generally, we spend a lot of time picking apart everything we've just built, um, whether it's good or not. Um, it, it, we just always think of some, immediately once something's grasped and done, you always think of another way you could have done it. It may not be a better answer, but the problem is you figured out another way of doing it, and that leads to questions. That's why I find the anybody who doesn't, anybody who believes they do everything right is, um, I've always joked, they're lousy architects. Um, the best ones usually actually question their work more than others. So that that's just sort of an observation. And last question would be, what golf course do you wish you had designed that you haven't worked on? Uh, Royal Melbourne. I'm glad we actually went through that. Uh, Royal Melbourne, I think, has just got um, an incredible flexibility for it. I've played it with both outstanding players and very average players, me being an average player too, and it works for both. Um, I think the scale of the golf course is remarkable, um, and I think the the hard choice of the tee shot on the fourth hole unlocked the rest of that uh, front nine routing, and I think the front nine may be one of the best routings I've ever seen, and it's based around one really surprising choice. Um, I think the greens are some of the best I've ever seen. and It may have the best par three I've ever seen in uh, the fifth. It's just an exquisite hole. But that I, I wish I did that because it's full of so many brilliant choices. And, and none of them, it doesn't rely on uh, one jarring moment. It's just of that high quality from start to finish, which is, I think that's our goal really is to build something that's complete. In the same degree, and I, again, I'm, I'm not as learned as you. I just know what I like. I loved playing the old course at St. Andrews, but when I look back at it, it is fairly plain on the surface, but it is a blast to play. From your point of your architectural point of view, what, well, first, I'm presuming you've you think it's a special course, but I could be wrong. I could I could give you a good argument. It's the best course in the world. It, it's not pretty. It doesn't open well. Um, it's full of blind shots. It's full of. It's not set over the most interesting piece of ground. But it's how it plays, not how it looks, that makes it special. So, 
If you're going there and you want to be visually wowed, you're only going to get visually wowed about four or five times. But if you go there and play, and particularly if you play in high winds and discover that you can still play that golf course in high winds, there's very few golf courses in the world that you can. But you, I've played it in a 40 mile an hour wind. You can get around it because it's so wide. The interesting thing uh, that I, it took me a little bit of time to fully understand is if you want to score, you have to take on all the problems. If you want to have fun, you can play away from everything, but it takes you extra shots. And it's that flexibility. It's that playing freedom to take on as much or as little as you need to. It will allow you to score and it'll break your heart. Um, it can be on the same hole where that can occur just by whether you bounce just over, say, the, the, um, the hell bunker. If you carry it, everything's grand. Or if you miss it wide right or left, everything's grand. But if you end up in it, you're going to take a little while to, to extract yourself from that spot because it's so deep. There's a lot of moments like that. There's, um, you can manage your way around it and just have a fun round by just removing most of the obstacles. So it's a very flexible golf course. But the more you play it, the more you find you have to play completely different spots to get to pin positions. And it's the one thing that you're never going to figure it out in a couple of plays. You, you need to see four or five different pin positions to fully appreciate that you may be 80 yards apart and where you want to come in from to get to that spot. And that's where the joy in that golf course comes from, is the fact that it takes a long time to unlock all the intricacies. Whereas you think about a lot of modern golf courses, if I avoid this bunker, get to this spot, there's a slope that's going to couch me. Um, if not, I could end up in trouble. And then I've, I'm going to hit it to here because that's where I need to be. And then I'm going to try to putt my way in, but you've not really had to pick your, your, and you're going to go and play it the next week. And you're going to play for the, that same center fairway spot. You're going to play for the middle of the green. Maybe you'll favor a side, but you're really not varying your play. It's just all about execution. The beauty about the old course is while execution is helpful, it's not necessary. And sometimes thought is more important than execution. It, it's plan, it's pre-planning. And that's where the joy from that golf course comes from, is that you have to think your way around. And my criticism of modern golf is often all the thinking's done for you, and it just becomes about execution. And to me, that is dull. Might as well be a mouse in a maze looking for a piece of cheese. That's not great golf. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you'd like to find out more about Ian Andrew, go to andrewgolf.com. If you'd like to comment on this episode, offer suggestions for future episodes, or just say hi, please email the Creationist Podcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to The Creationist and rate us on whatever platform you're listening on. And if I could ask one last favor, please share this podcast with any of your friends who you think might be interested. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. <laughs>